we wanted to do tonight was to answer some questions um, that have been submitted about just exactly who Jesus is. And uh, we, we don't want to preach a sermon on any of these, uh, even though all the questions that we have you probably could preach a sermon on. Uh, but our goal is probably to provide answers in maybe five minutes or less. And uh, I'll share some, and Robert will share some, Ronnie will, will share some. And uh, if our answers create questions, um, I've been known to answer questions that create other questions, uh, feel free to share those things, approach us, uh, email us, text us, meet us in the lobby. Uh, we'd love to talk more, more about those things. Um, but we do, have, we do have several questions tonight. I doubt that we actually get through all of them, but uh, let's just start with, with this first one. Uh, and Ronnie, we're going to let you answer this one to start us off. Uh, why is Jesus not called Emmanuel? I mean, we call him Jesus, but the text says there in, in Matthew, and his name shall be Emmanuel. So why do we call him Jesus instead of calling him Emmanuel? You're going to need that. Well, there's many answers to this, I think at least. You've got in Isaiah 9 verse 6 that he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are accurate descriptions of who he is and what he does. We also know that Emmanuel means God with us. Isaiah 7.14 talks about how that God is with us. Also, <clears throat> Matthew 1.22 through 23. So my thought <clears throat> on why we don't really call him Emmanuel, it's kind of like Babe Ruth. I'm going to watch my time. It's kind of like Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was called the Big Bambino. Even though he was Babe Ruth, he had other names or other um, titles, so to speak, or nicknames whatsoever, even though we don't do God that way. But you also have um, Deion Sanders. You know, Deion Sanders, Deion Sanders' uh, uh, name was, nickname was, what they called him was Primetime. So even though, yes, he is Emmanuel, even, even though, yes, that means God with us, back in Isaiah 9-6, there's so many other different names that we could call him but also because of all of these, these other names that he is. The other names that we talked about, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is called Jesus. That's the name that we know and recognize him as. It's also kind of like me. Dylan Patterson nicknamed me Uncle Ron Ron. Even though my name's Ronnie, to a lot of the teenagers today, I'm classified as Uncle Ron Ron. So there's multiple names that Jesus could be called, but his divine nature and because of his miraculous work. But we call him Jesus, again, because he is God with us, and that is exactly who he is. So it's more of a descriptive term. You know, I found it interesting, um, when I was preaching on this on, on Emmanuel, Somebody asked this morning, do things ever jump out at you at the text? And when I was preaching through this, um, and he says his name shall be Emmanuel, it's in the very, it's two verses later, it says, and he called his name Jesus. Like it wasn't, and, and it wasn't an accident. They didn't just like, oh, I forgot I was supposed to call him Emmanuel. No, they're right there together uh, where those things are. These terms really describe the nature 
of the Messiah. And, and they serve as, uh, to describe his attributes and, and they provide us an appropriate description of his power and his work. And, and by nature, he was the son of Mary. His name, uh, by nature, the son of Mary was Emmanuel, but by name, it was Jesus. Yeah. Robert, while you have that mic, let me ask you the second question that was submitted. Um, how did Jesus fulfill the law instead of abolishing it? You know, that, that, so that, that, that's what he says about himself, right? He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But, you know, sometimes it looks like if you just have a pretty surface reading of, of, of the Bible, it kind of looks like he abolished it. So what, what did he mean when he said that? Well, I'll be honest with you. This is one of those questions you can preach a sermon on. Yes, don't. And, and <laughs> if, you, if you will go to, uh, of course, Matthew chapter 5, this is kind of a brief answer. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, if you go over to Galatians 3, and starting there in verse 15 there, it starts talking about the law and the promise. And it takes you back to Genesis when that promise was made to Abraham. There was a promise made to Abraham. It was a seed promise, and there was a land promise. That land promise was fulfilled when the Israelites entered Canaan land. That seed promise was part of this fulfillment that Christ did. The, the seed promise was the coming of the Messiah, coming of Christ. And, and you see that thread all the way through the Bible uh, that brings us to Christ. And you go over into First Peter. Uh, Peter talked about Christ was foreordained before the foundations of the earth was ever laid. So when, when, when we read in Matthew there that Christ says he didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now, Every one of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of one, remembering the Sabbath, is brought forward into the New Testament, and Christ reiterates those and he expands on them in the New Testament. So the, the moral principles of that old law are brought forward into the New Testament. And, and that, you know, Christ, he didn't come to rewrite that old law. He, he came to... In, uh, enhance it and to better it and it says in that if you read Galatians 3 there it talks about that old law was added because of transgressions uh, that patriarchal age covers the book of Genesis it's 2500 year period the mosaical period of time was 1500 years and then that brought us into the Christian age and, and we see that thread that seed promise being brought and it was before the foundation of the earth it was in the god's mind to bring us to christ to 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 uh to for for our salvation you know i think one of the reasons that we struggle with these questions like this sometimes is because we see we see the old testament and the new testament as two completely different things right i mean it's new testament christianity we're all the time talking about that and you know the old is nailed to the cross and what we fail to see is how they fit together. That's right. Like, so, so to understand, the intent always was for a Messiah to come. The intent always was for a new covenant to come. It wasn't just, I always use the illustration, sometimes I think people read the Bible and it's almost yeah. like, you know, the Lord's walking, he's got one girl, and all of a sudden he just drops her and gets him another one. And, but that's not what it is. That, that, 
It's intended to be this, this seamless transition when Christ comes. He is the Messiah that all Jews were, they should have embraced him. And, and so the verse that always hits in my mind is in Romans 9, um, where he talks about how Jesus became a stumbling stone, right? And, and, and when they should have embraced him, they didn't even see him and they just stumbled all over him. So that's why, that's why people think, well, he's, he's abolishing the law. No, he's fulfilling the law. Oh, very good. Uh, hold on to that for just a second. Let's get this third question. Um, this is really a pretty hard question. Carrie, I may need you to come up here and answer this one for me. Um, why was the death of Jesus necessary? So we, so we know that the, the death of Jesus is a reality that we talk about in the scriptures, but why did he have to die? And, and some of these things we know by faith. Right? We, we understand that these are things that God has revealed to us, that this is what was necessary in order to take away our sins. But there's a verse, if you have your Bibles, uh, go to Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, you're thinking of, of what his death did and overcoming sin and, and defeating Satan. But I guess I should turn there too. In, in Romans chapter 3, he's talking about the nature of the death of Jesus. By the way, my Bible is somewhere in the building. If you see it, let me know. I'm, I'm, I've stole my son's Bible. He doesn't notice it yet, though, but I'm fumbling with it. But uh, in Romans 3 and verse 26, he speaks of the death of Jesus, and he says, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, God's. The death of Jesus was necessary to demonstrate the righteousness of God that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Come on. Y'all hear me? Really? I'm, I'm like echoing up here. Well, I, I can use this handheld. So you want me to start from the beginning? Romans 3 and verse 23. It's all about the righteousness of God, that he might be just and the justifier. So this idea that we have a sin problem and within ourselves and within the church, uh, within individuals, how can God forgive sin? And God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't say, well, we, we know, what would you say, Uncle Ron Ron over there. We, we know him and we know he's a good guy, so we're going to overlook it. Well, if God did that, then he wouldn't be a very righteous God any more than a judge who, 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 let, a, you know, who, who, who let a murderer off without being punished. We'd say that's not a very righteous judge. So when we sin, somebody's got to die. For the wages of sin is death. So Jesus dies on the cross because of our sin. Because somebody's got to die. But God wants to justify us. So in his death, God is, not a, is, all, is able to be the one who justifies us, but he does so in a just way. So never get the idea that, that there's no price that goes along with our sin. That's a big question. You could, you could do a whole sermon on this one too, Robert. Um, you guys want to share anything about that one? Well, also, if you go over to Romans chapter 5, don't sound like so. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, through perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now justified by His blood, much more shall be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have now received reconciliation. Okay. Well, this next question is, uh, I don't suppose there's a wrong answer to it, but speaking of the example of Jesus, which is a perfect example, uh, the question is, what do you think is the most challenging part of Jesus' example? So just as you think about Jesus, and you can answer this in the audience, right? What challenges you the most about the example, Jesus' perfect example? Robert? Following his example. That's the hardest thing. The two that I thought of are compassion and treating everyone equal. Now that's sitting up here saying, okay, what does that mean? But truly, when you are mistreated by others and we try to be like Jesus was, that's, for Ronnie West, that's tough sometimes. Because my response is, I want to have vengeance myself, which is not what the Lord wants us to do, which is not how Jesus was when He walked on this earth. Yeah, I would almost echo off of that, uh, Ronnie, about just how we deal with others. There's that fleshly side of us. Uh, and so for me, it, it just has, to, I guess I would say, keeping my big mouth shut. You know, I, the, the the verse in first peter in first peter um first peter chapter two he's talking about jesus on the cross and it doesn't just say that he didn't call ten thousand angels you know he didn't just not destroy the world but it says in verse 23 who when he was reviled he did not revile in return and when he suffered he did not threaten but he committed himself to him who judges righteously and so when you think about the example and, and doing what he did, right, Robert? Following, uh, actu actually, tangibly, not just talking about Jesus, but actually doing what he did. Sometimes just being willing to, to keep your mouth shut. Even though there are a lot of things Jesus could have said on the cross. And, and I often wonder how much conflict in our, in our family, in our churches, uh, in our workplace, in our world, that we could avoid if we were just willing to suffer as a righteous man silently like Jesus did, just trusting in God, that's tough. Um, because, well, because you guys know, because of the flesh. Good, good answers. Um, another one, we, we have been having this question a lot in our, in our Sunday morning Bible class, and it seems to come up almost every other week in some shape, form, or fashion. People, people reformat it, but it's the same question we ask all the time. Uh, why didn't people believe in Jesus? I mean, you know, you, you've got somebody who's feeding thousands of people, uh, healing lame people, giving sight to the blind, right? Even, even, uh, even uh, raising from the dead. 
Um, so whether you're talking about the, the life of Jesus or, or after the life of, of Jesus, you know, like in the book of Acts, why didn't these people believe? Because it seems like it's pretty obvious that they should believe. Well, talking about the book of Acts, uh, we're studying Acts on Sunday morning, and you've, you've got the Jewish population really that were looking for an earthly king. And, you know, they... they they saw the miracles. They saw everything Jesus was doing. Of course, the Jews were divided into the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. So Christ here talking about the resurrection, and, and you know, they were at odds with the, with the actual Jewish population there. I, I, I wrote in for just some of my notes, I, I put lack of faith. You know, that, that's really the bottom line, lack of faith. Uh, I know going back over in uh, the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. You know, uh, a lack of faith in Christ uh, is, is uh, why people do not believe in Jesus Christ. There's so many things going on in the world today social things and and people it's pride and and uh not you know the social agenda is keeping people away from the church uh i know brother tony in our class on wednesday nights uh in, in hebrews chapter five uh the scripture there and and whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of uh, righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, or full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And, you know, in the book of Acts, we just, I think it was a lot of political stuff going on between the Jewish people and, and Christ. They were looking for an earthly king, and Christ was humble. He was patient, even though he was uh, committing all these signs and wonders and these miracles. Expectations. Expectations. They were looking for, they were looking for an earthly king. And, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's just many, many reasons why people don't believe in Christ. And it, it, it's really, uh, the devil is hard at work in this country. He, he's, he's really just, I mean, this country is, is, I mean, y'all see it as well as I do, of what's going on in this country. The morals and, and everything. I mean, right is becoming, or, or things that are wrong or, or so-called coming right according to uh, you know social needs and so forth but uh, anyway I just I, I basically said like a faith well I could sit here and preach a sermon on this one but the ones that popped out at me the thoughts were <clears throat> and I'll dumb it down a little bit so to speak for it to make sense to me is jealousy <clears throat> if you remember 
what kept Jesus in trouble was Jesus was not doing in, according to what the Pharisees and Sadducees and, their, and everybody wanted. They were always trying to find fault in him. Uh, it goes back to, to me, I think it goes back to arrogance. <clears throat> you know, people think that they are morally good and they don't need God. I love to tell stories. If you've ever been in any of my classes, so I'll try to be brief and quick. <clears throat> but I have a nephew that was raised in the church. And he has decided that over the years that as long as he's just morally good, he's good. He doesn't have to go to church. He don't have to pray. He don't have to study his Bible. He just don't go out there and do anything you shouldn't do that cause you to end up in prison, and you're going to be okay. And I think that's unfortunately the way that people, a lot of people today live, is they just feel like all i got to do is just be a morally good person, as we talked about, and everything will be fine. It's also, uh, John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you go back and read John 14, I'm sorry, John 12, 42 and 43, it talks about status. What was going on there with the authorities? Love, the position, and the esteem from others. So they wanted that status. They didn't want to follow him because they knew that if they followed him, that people would be against them. And they didn't want that. So in our lives today, that's what we've got to look at and see and believe and trust in. It doesn't matter where we are. doesn't matter our position. doesn't matter what we own. The bottom line is we've got to be bold and courageous, and we've got to stand for Him no matter what. And they didn't want that. They, didn't, they weren't interested in what they knew was the truth before them. I say all the time, I just couldn't imagine have walked in the time that Jesus was here and not believed in him. It would have been real hard for me. But it was happening. And then today we can use the excuse of, well, he's not here, I don't see him. So it's a whole lot easier not to believe in him. But we also know what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. So we just got to live a life of where we know he's here. We just look around in this room tonight and see that he's here. And, and do our best to live for him and trust in him on a daily basis. You know, we were answering this question in class um, a couple weeks ago, and Brother Travis dropped by, and I thought hit the nail on the head pretty well. Don't tell Travis I quoted him, okay? But he just said, they didn't believe for the same reason we don't believe. I thought, yeah, it's pretty much right. I mean, th th so this idea that you, it's easy to look at it from 10,000 feet away and say, well, it's obvious they should do this and they should do that. But how many times have we, I don't know, we've read our Bible, we've listened to, a, listened to a sermon, we've sat in a Bible class, and we knew good and well what it was saying about what we ought to do, and we just didn't do anything. Uh, that, that's a human condition, and it ought to make us look at it and say, I don't want to be like that. I, I don't want to be that person who won't be moved by the, by the evidence that's before me. Uh, what, one, of, one of the places in Acts 4 when they're trying to figure out what to do with Peter and John and, and, and this lame man that they've healed. And, and as they're discussing it, they say, this is Acts uh, 4. He says, indeed, I note, verse 16, uh, what, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Well, you would think, what should you do about that? You ought to listen to these guys. 
But instead, they're like, we got we to gotta shut them up. And, and there's, there's a heart problem there um, that we want to be people that can and will be moved by the evidence. Um, and, and so that, that relates to how we accept Jesus. But I think that, that that relates to how we even grow in our faith on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis when we come into Bible class and we are exposed to God's Word. You know, are we just there to have our, our thoughts confirmed? Or are we there to be challenged by the Word of God? There's a big difference in those two things. And, and I think I know the struggles they had, their blind spot was they wanted to be confirmed. So that, that, that's good. Ask this question. This is a difficult question. Why did John ask about Jesus? So you remember so the scene, I think it's in John 11, um, where John the, John the baptizer sends messengers to Jesus saying, basically, if I could paraphrase, are you really the one? Matthew, so 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 it's it's yeah Matthew eleven. It it's really it's really odd because John was the one who was who was one of the very first people to say, "Behold, the Lamb of God." John baptized Jesus. John actually heard the voice of the Father. Right when when this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. I I never seen that at a baptism. John saw that. So why later on is he asking, "Are you really the Christ?" Who wants to answer that? I'll take a shot at it. <laughs> you know, uh, John was in prison at this time for condemning Herod and Herodias for their adulterous marriage. And in Mark six seventeen, it says, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So you've got to think about the fact that John here is in prison, and, and we don't know what he has gone through during that period of time. But when he heard about Christ, you know, he, he, he sent to, uh, 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 some of his disciples there, to two of his disciples there in verse 2 and 3, and he said it to them, are you, the, uh, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Um, you know, it, 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 it demonstrates some confusion there on John's behalf, on his part. And that question might not ever be answered, but some of the thoughts are that if, if you go over into Acts chapter 1, verse 6, I made mention of this just a minute ago, this is right before Christ's ascension back into heaven. And Christ's disciples there, they literally, it says, therefore when they had come together, they asked Christ saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, Paul, I mean, John, being in prison like that, he literally might have had the same thinking as these Jews. He may have been asking, you know, are you the Christ? Are you you know, he, he may have been thinking that Christ was going to restore the kingdom there. And, and I know that a lot of the Jews thought that, and, and they didn't understand. That's right. And, and so he's probably in the same situation as these disciples were there in Acts chapter 1, asking that question. And, and so I, that, that could be part of the confusion or part of, uh, could be a reason, you know. The only thing I was going to add to it was at that time also you had imposters. 
and people that were out pre- preaching and, and saying and doing things that were not according to God's Word. So I think that's another thing, which I totally agree with everything that's been said, but I think it's another thing that popped into my head was the situation of him just trying to get clarity. Clarity of who he was and what he was doing. You know, another, I want to say one more thing. Another thing, too, when you, when you, you go to Matthew chapter 11, and after, after this event there, you know, Christ's response there uh, to, the, to the ones that were sent, you know, he said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know, of course, all the miracles that Christ was doing, you know, was very obvious. And so uh, what's unique about this is that finishing out that whole chapter 11 there, Christ, he talks about John the Baptist being one of the greatest. And, and uh, it says the, the, the text literally demonstrates even a great and brave person can have moments of confusion. The great prophet has gone through much trial. His faith, his patience was being sorely test, tested. And as possible, like many other Jews, he was looking for a different kind of ruler that would usher in a new regime. But anyway, the Lord goes on to show that John the Baptist is one of the heroes of the New Testament. Yeah, so, and I like that you, you got in there on, on his answer. And if I could paraphrase, you know, there at the end of Jesus' answer, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And if we could piggyback off of people looking at Jesus and rejecting Jesus and their expectations, which are something different, that if I could paraphrase what Jesus is saying is, blessed is the person who still believes in me even when I'm not exactly what they thought I was going to be. And, and to let revelation define what jesus is who jesus is what his church is what a walk with him looks like rather than our own expectations and and i think that i mean it gets gets in people's way sometimes when you talk to people because they have this idea about who jesus is you'll see people well i wouldn't believe in a god who fill in the blank well what a foolish thing to say right i mean god is what god is and you better believe in him because he's god and if God, and if Jesus is everything that you think he ought to be, he probably is not God, because you're not God. And, and I think that's part of what he's trying to say, that he's just trying to reassure him. Uh, and I also think John's in prison. So when things are going badly, this is speculative, but, but when things are going badly, that, that's when we all start to question, right? I mean, I know what I saw. I know what I thought. I mean, I was so confident about this, but I'm sitting here rotten in a prison cell, and was I right about that? I think that's probably a, a normal question, which even in our faith, when we have difficult times, we go back and we ask those questions, right? And they're not, they're not wrong to ask the question. It, I mean, it's actually helpful to ask the question and to, and to get the answer. So yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a good one. All right, let, let, let's do two more Two more, and uh, we've been talking about John, but the question is, uh, why was Jesus baptized? So we understand New Testament baptism uh, for the remission of sins, um, and, and even uh, the text says that John's baptism was for the remission of sins. It's a baptism of repentance. 
but Jesus didn't have any sin. He was perfect. And, and a matter of fact, we're not the only people that have asked this question. John asked this question, right? When Jesus came and said, I want you to baptize me, John said, I mean, why, why would I baptize you? You ought to be baptizing me. So why was Jesus baptized? I'm going to get rid of this mic in a hurry. All right, if you turn your Bible over to, <clears throat> this is an easy answer. If you turn your Bible over to Matthew, the third chapter, Matthew chapter 3, we're going to read 13 to 17. So then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you <clears throat> and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this it is fitting for us to fulfill the righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom... I am well pleased. So my first thought is, it was God's will. Next. It was God's will. Verse 17 says, <clears throat> And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So I think it was, as we can read there, that he did it. Why he was is because it was God's will. I also believe it sanctioned John's ministry and baptism of what John was doing at that point in time. I also think it was an example for others that if Jesus is willing to do it, why in the world are we not going to do it? And he had no sin. He was a perfect individual, individual walking this earth. And then my last one is, <clears throat> he was able to humbly identify with sinners whether he understands and knows what we're going through and what we deal with and what we need to do. Those are my thoughts. I think you covered it. Oh, that's, that's, that's very good. And I think all, all those things are definitely true. I mean, can you imagine the difficulty we would have if Jesus himself wasn't baptized? Trying to teach, even the clear new, we get enough people struggling with the clear new testament teaching on baptism. I wanted to throw things like, well, the thief on the cross, I know it's a different covenant, right? We'll get that question in a couple of months. But, but, but if Jesus wasn't baptized, there's that example, to fulfill all righteousness. It was the will of God. And he was pretty clear about that. And you know, one thing always about Jesus is he'll make statements that he doesn't take time to explain. Right? Well, it's the will of God. Okay, can, I, can, I tell, can you tell me more? You don't need anything more than that. Just know that this was the will of my Father. And let that be enough for you. Um, and, and our nature, yeah, but I want more. Well, you ain't getting any more, right? Uh, so I, I, I think that a lot about Jesus. All right, let, let's ask one, one last question about the teaching of Jesus. Um, why did Jesus teach with parables? Jesus was sometimes the master storyteller. Uh, why do you use parables so much? If you... Um Turn over to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. 
his disciples asked him that question. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Christ answered, he said unto them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whosoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But who, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Yeah, the only thing I was going to add is, as we know, the parables were earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And it's volumes of truth and not easily forgotten. So think about that. We can sit here, Wes can get up here, or anybody can get up here, or we can get in our Bible studies and our classes, and we think about and hear about these parables and the things that come to mind that can help us on a daily basis in all that we do. <clears throat> it was also an instrument of judgment and mercy of what was going to happen and what the results were going to be about different things. And then also those that didn't believe it, didn't understand him. And interesting, I don't know if, it's, if you're this way, but I'm this way. If I don't have an answer to something, it drives me crazy. So I try to find that answer. And I think that may have been part of it also is that they didn't understand because they didn't believe, but it also is something that maybe left them to go, I need to figure this thing out. This is killing me. That's my perspective of what I think that the parables also meant. So it's twofold. You know, parables are used to illustrate in great ways. And, and all of us that can remember, you know, hearing an illustration that made something click in our minds. that We, we, we knew it, but, but it made it come alive to us. You know, making the Word come alive, that, that's not a new issue that people face. And, I mean, I was just sitting here thinking of the first time I heard the illustration about the father whose son had to give all of his blood for other people. And how they would feel about, you know, that, that, I mean, to me, I think about that almost every Lord's Day when we take, take up the Lord's Supper. It's, just, it's something that illustrates, right, that, that, those facts that we know. But, but from the text uh, that Robert read from us uh, in Matthew and, and in Mark, he, he gives a, a secondary purpose of parables, right? Not only to illustrate, and this may seem a little bit odd to us, but he says parables were given to hide the word. Uh, almost akin to like apocalyptic literature, like why things in Revelation were written the way that they were written. But you remember, this is, this is Mark 4. Um, to, to you, well, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parable, so that seeing they may not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand. Christ had a lot of opposition. Yeah, Christ had a lot of opposition. And, and he was aware of that, 
but, but you know, Christ also dealt with hard-hearted people. And, and one of the things, one of the things that, that Jesus, I, I, I definitely get this from reading, reading the Gospels, that he wants us to engage. He wants us to do work. He wants us to think. He, he wants us to apply ourselves. And we, we live in this world, I guess it was no different then, but where people, people want to be pampered, people want to be spoon-fed, the, the Word and their faith, and to be made as, as simple as possible, and don't, don't ever ask me to think more than about 20 seconds on something. I mean, that's kind of the world we live in. If you don't believe it, try to have a serious conversation with people. And, and Jesus just says, that's not what I'm here for. If that's what you're here for, you're not going to get anything out of this. But if you're here to think, if you're here to grow, then this is going to change everything for you. And he says, that's not about my message. That's about your heart. And, and honestly, I, I think that's the same situation that we face today where so many times people want to be spoon-fed the gospel, and the gospel is it's, it, it's not, it's not to be spoon-fed. It, it is for us to engage. It is for us to be dedicated to, to think through and to meditate upon and to be challenged by i mean each one of these questions are things that they ought to be challenging us in our thoughts about who jesus is because these these are not easy things to think about but they're worthwhile in making that picture of our savior and and maybe that fits into the questions that we've asked about well why did jesus do this or why did jesus do that why didn't people believe in jesus and so I would just say that each one of us, as we, as we engage with Jesus, we have choices to make just like they did. The gospel is for all. And the message of Jesus Christ is one that everyone in this room has had the opportunity to hear. How we're going to respond to that, to that gospel message? Well, we have to determine that. You have to determine that. And for some, the message of Jesus Christ, it will change your life. It will, it, it will change the, the, the place that you have in this world and the place that you have in eternity. For some, the message of Jesus Christ won't make any difference. It will have been, as he, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as if it were in vain. Might as well not have happened. But the person that determines that's me. The person that determines that's you. No matter how good the preacher is or the preacher's not, right? No matter how much I, I agree with this decision or that, no, no matter what's going on or not going on in my life, all those things, we, we, they impact us, right? We have to decide. And so that invitation that Jesus gives to us that we're going to extend in just a moment, he extends it to you and to me. Maybe that invitation to be born again through his blood. Maybe that invitation to be to, to have your sins forgiven. Maybe just an invitation to walk together with Him. To allow Him to truly be the Lord of your life. You have to decide that. But if you've made that decision tonight, and we can help you with, with that, we ask you to come this evening as we stand and as we sing.